Thanks, Blaine. That passage gets your attention, doesn't it? Well, I'm going to begin today by uh, reading a series of true or false questions for you to answer. These questions have to do with how we should conduct ourselves in the church, specifically here at Faith. And if you're our guest today, uh, just feel free to listen in on this, this little pop quiz, okay? Number one, true or false, since I am just one person in a rather large church, the health of the church is not affected by whether or not I walk with God. Number two, true or false, when it comes to giving to the church and serving in the church, my attitude is irrelevant. The only thing that matters is that I give and that I serve. Number three, true or false, when it comes to others in the church, it doesn't really matter what I think about them. The only thing that matters is how I treat them. Well, this morning's passage suggests that all three of those statements are false. This morning's passage suggests that God not only cares about what we do, God is concerned about the human heart. God is concerned about your heart. God is concerned about my heart and what that means for the life of this church. And I say all of that because uh, Luke describes how a, how a threat to the unity of the church in Jerusalem, how God dealt with it. The church in Jerusalem was actually a very large church, and yet they had this extraordinary unity. Uh, we, heard, we learned earlier in chapter 4 that there were 5,000 people in the church at Jerusalem. And yet here we're told that they were of one heart and soul. And so you had this incredible unity. And yet when two people entered in and they had a different heart, God responded in a very fierce way. He dealt with them in order to protect the unity of the church. And so as we work our way through this passage, uh, I want us to all to pay attention to what it says and the implications for our own hearts, what we bring to the church, how we relate to one another here at Faith. First of all, we see a picture of heart-level unity in the church in verses 32 through 37. Listen again to verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And so the picture here is that because they are of one heart and soul, they were united and they treated each other like family. They treated each other the way you would treat your family. You say, if there's something I, ha I have that you need, absolutely, of course, it's yours. Just, just take it. And so they had everything in common. And this isn't what we find throughout Acts, and this wasn't a rule that the apostles laid down. This is a spontaneous act of generosity. They held everything in common. And uh, we read in verse 33, And with great power the apostles are giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon all of them. The emphasis is upon all of them. And so the apostles, they, they were believable. They had great power when they said, we are eyewitnesses that Jesus who was crucified, he was literally bodily raised from the dead. And so they gave that testimony, 
And as we'll see later, it was believable. They were convincing. And consequently, there was great grace upon everyone. This was the norm, not the exception. Everybody in the church received great help and great uh, blessing from God. And then in verses 34 and 35, we have tangible evidence of this grace at work. We read, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners, plural, owners of lands or houses, plural, so they were wealthy people, <clears throat> they sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. And so this is striking. They weren't just giving from their income, right? They were liquidating assets, and they were bringing the proceeds to the apostles. And Luke gives us a pattern here that will be repeated twice in this passage. They sold a piece of property or a house, and they brought it, number two, and number three, they laid it at the apostles' feet. And by doing this, the wealthy were, were ex expressing this deep humility and this deep submission to God, and they trusted, and the, the, the apostles were God's spokespersons, and they would distribute it on behalf of Jesus. The result was that there wasn't a needy person among them. The entire believing community was taken care of. And next, Luke gives a specific example of a landowner <clears throat> who followed this pattern of giving. We know of as Barnabas. That was his nickname, son of encouragement. And you can imagine every time they said that name, here comes, here comes the one who encourages us. Here's the one that gives us courage to walk with God. And he'll figure prominently uh, in the book of Acts. And so uh, Luke gives some details about his life here. <clears throat> Thus... Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, and here's the pattern, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. And so he was one of these good-hearted, generous, wealthy people who just wanted to see the needs of the community met. So he was humble, he submitted this money to the, to the apostles, and uh, that was good enough for him. He just wanted to see people in the church taken care of. And so Luke gives us this picture of, of heart-level unity that every church and every culture should seek to imitate. And it will look different in, in different cultures and in, in different generations. We live in a very different, uh, that was a very specific time. We live in a very different economy uh, and yet the heart is the same. We should say, we're a family. That's who we are. And so we seek to be generous in every way. We want to see all sorts of needs met in the church, financial needs, material needs, and spiritual needs. And so we don't come in saying, I mainly care about me. Good luck to all the rest of you. No, we come in and we say, no, we're, we're a family. And so we, we care about each other, and that shows up spontaneously and an organized way through generosity. In this context, Luke tells us about a threat to the unity and the purity of this infant church in Jerusalem. And so in Acts 5, Luke records an incident that reveals God's zeal for heart-level unity in the church. It's one thing that's unmistakable. We have a lot of questions about what happens next, but one thing that is unmistakable is that God is zealous for the unity 
of the church. Not superficial unity, but heart-level unity. In contrast with Barnabas, Luke tells us about a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. And their actions on the surface looked identical to what Barnabas did. But they had a very different heart, and that's the emphasis. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, so they were together on this, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds bought only and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So do you see how they, they added a step to this, this pattern? They sold a piece of land, step 1B. They held back part of it, and then they brought some of the proceeds to the apostles, and they laid it at their feet. Well, see, in verse 4, the, the, the issue is not that they held some of it back. The issue is that they lied about it. They gave the appearance, or they were explicit in saying, we sold this property, and here's everything that we sold it for, brought it to them. And at this point, you might wonder, well, what is the big deal? Why does it really matter that they lied about it? Money is money. This money is going to do a lot of good. It would do as much good as Barnabas's money. I mean, it's, it's going to help the poor. What's the big deal? Well, it turns out the big deal is that God cares about the human heart. The eyes of the Lord look to and throw throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose hearts are wholly his. He wants us to love him with all our heart, not just a fraction of it. And so, God cares not only about what we do, he does care about that, but he also cares about the motives of the human heart. Whereas the believers were of one heart and soul, Ananias and Sapphira had a very different heart. But Peter said, verse 3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. And so apparently God had revealed this to Peter. He didn't just know this. God revealed it to him. Instead of being filled with the Spirit, as you see throughout the book of Acts, so-and-so was filled with the Spirit. In this case, Satan had filled Ananias's heart. Consequently, he lied to the Holy Spirit, saying that he had brought the entire proceeds when he had held some of it back for himself. And that becomes apparent in verse 4. Peter says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And so Peter points out, Ananias, you didn't have to sell the land. It's yours. You could have done with it what you wanted. And after you sold it, you could have done whatever you wanted with the proceeds. You could have kept it all. You could have given all the proceeds. You could have given some of the proceeds. The only thing you could not do is lie about it. And so he says here, he said in in verse 3 that he had been lying to the Spirit. Here he restates himself. He says, you have not lied to man, but to God. And so this, this is one of those verses that, that makes has made the church down through the centuries conclude that there is one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so lying to the Holy Spirit is lying to God. The Spirit, like the Father, 
is divine. And God's judgment was swift. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. That's shocking, right? Even troubling, right? Why not a gentle correction? Why not this appeal? Repent or else? No, he was just struck dead on the spot. And uh, I hope you weren't coming for, for some big explanation to explain exactly why God did this. Uh, I would just say the only thing we cannot do, we must not do, is say that God is unjust. We can never accuse God of being unjust. And I think one reason why this is so troubling to us is we have no idea how precious the church is to God. It's the household of God. Think about how fierce you are about your family. If you have kids, think about how how you would do anything to protect your children. And so the church is the household of God. The church was bought, the church was redeemed by the blood of Christ. It was bought with an infinite price. Then you have these passages like 1 Corinthians 3, 16, and 17. This is what Paul told the church at Corinth. He said, do you not know that you are God's temple? And that's plural, you, all of you, collectively, you are God's temple. And that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. And so Luke's simple point in recording this this incident is to emphasize that God is zealous about his church. He is zealous specifically about heart-level unity in the church. Ananias and Sapphira embodied what Jesus warned against in Matthew 6. He said, when you give to the poor, when you bring alms, don't make a show of it. You're not trying trying to impress other people. Do it secretly. God is the one who notices. He's the one who will reward. And so Ananias and Sapphira found out the hard way. God really does see and care about the human heart. Consequently, we read, great fear came upon all who heard it. Everybody heard about this. They're like, that is not a God we should mess with. We should not mess with his people. We need to be honest. Our hearts need to be pure when we enter into and how we conduct ourselves in this church. Verse 6, rather matter-of-factly, Luke says, the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Next, we see that Ananias' wife, uh, she suffered a similar fate. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And so Luke is paraphrasing here, had a dollar amount in there, denarius amount in there. And she said, yes, for so much. Verse 9, but Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? You lied to the spirit. You've lied to God. Here he says, now you, you have, how have you agreed to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. This comment that they agreed to test the Spirit of the Lord, that's reminiscent of what happened in in the wilderness with the children of Israel. They tested the Lord their God. 
It's like they say, we're going to poke God in the eye one more time and see what happens, see what happens. And so they, they tested the Lord. And the principle illustrated here is that how you treat the church is how you treat God. And I don't say that because I think the church is perfect or I think the church is, is necessarily worthy. But that's what you find throughout the book of Acts. How you treat the church is how you treat God. <clears throat> One of the clearest examples is found in Acts 9 when Jesus confronts Paul, Saul at the time, on the road to Damascus and blinds him. Do you remember the question Jesus asked him? Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He didn't say, why are you persecuting my church? Why are you persecuting me? However you treat the church, however you treat Jesus' people, is how you treat him. Verse 10, immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came, they found her in, they, came, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. So both within the church and outside the church, there was this fear of the Lord. God is not to be trifled with. Now, I will say one thing about this. <laughs> you know, you probably noticed in Scripture and in everyday life, what happened to Ananias and Sapphira is not the norm. Every time you see somebody with poor motives or bad behavior in the church, God doesn't strike them dead. It's not true in the, in the rest of the Old T New Testament or in everyday life. If God did, I think we'd all agree the church would be a lot smaller, Right? And you'd be, the, those of you that remain, I would say, would be looking for a new pastor on, on a regular basis. And so that's not the way it, it normally works. Actually, uh, if a church and its people uh, seek to live out the commands of Jesus and the commands of the Scripture, then when impure motives are surfaced, they're dealt with. We admonish one another. We encourage one another. We speak the truth in love to one another, and we woo each other back to Christ. I see these motives in you. Is that what's going on here? Will you turn from them? Will you be pure-hearted in, in relation to the church? And so, in other words, when relationships in the body of Christ are healthy, we actually help each other turn away from wrong ways of thinking and acting. But that only happens when we walk in humility, or it says in, it says in Ephesians 5, when we submit to one another in the fear of the Lord. But when churches or individuals within the church don't follow the teachings of Jesus and the apostles, and impure motives run rampant in the church, then consequences are sometimes severe. And so don't hear me saying, God would never do that in our day. Because that's not, not the truth. In 1 Corinthians 11, read it, read it sometime when Paul is talking about the Lord's table in Corinth. He says something rather fierce. And uh, in that day, the Lord's table was associated with a larger meal, a, a love feast. And those that were wealthy, it's interesting. Again, it's the wealthy versus the impoverished. Uh, those that were wealthy and had status, they had this freedom to come early and apparently in Corinth, they were eating all the food and they were getting drunk. And then when the others came, 
There was no more food, and they were just left out. And so it was the exact opposite of what the Lord's Supper was supposed to reveal. It's supposed to be a gr- this grand expression of unity. But Paul's comment is that because of their abuses, many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. So we shouldn't say that God never judges people severely in our day. But the point that Luke wants to make, again, again it's make is very obvious, is that God sees our hearts and he's zealous for the unity of the church. And so in this passage, after Luke talks about this pure-hearted unity, heart-level unity in the church, how God dealt with this threat to the unity in the church, then he talks about the influence that the church continued to have on those outside the church. And so we see in verses 12 through 16 of chapter 5, the influence of a church with heart-level unity. And I'll summarize most of what Luke says in this passage, but he says three things. First of all, many were healed. We read that the apostles continued to perform signs and wonders among the people in Jesus' name. And so these miracles did at least a couple of things. They met tangible, physical, and spiritual needs. Somebody was demonized, and the apostles cast out a demon in Jesus' name. There was freedom. If someone was sick or infirmed in some way and they were healed physically, it met that need. But it was also a sign that pointed to Jesus. Just like if you're on the highway, if you're going up north here, and it points to Randolph, right? You say, turn here if you want to go to Randolph. In the same way, you see this sign, this, this miracle, that's a sign. If you want to get to God, turn to Jesus. He's powerful. There's power in his name for healing and for salvation. Second, not only were many people healed, many were saved. Verse 14, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And so this news about Jesus has had this added credibility, not only because of their unity, but also because of the power that was demonstrated through the apostles. And so they demonstrated the type of life you can have if you're a disciple of Jesus, and it was compelling for more and more people. And then third, there were many that respected them, but they kept their distance. In verse 13, we read, None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And so in the general population, there was this respect for the apostles and for the church. But for a variety of reasons, they said, Yeah, we we hold you in high esteem, but we're not going to enter in and become uh, disciples of Jesus. And it could have been uh, out of fear that they too, like the apostles, would be persecuted. Or it could be that they were afraid of these Christians. God, we want to keep our distance from a God like, like that. But whatever the case, they weren't ready to become disciples of Jesus and enter into the church. But this is the influence that every church with heart-level unity can have. If you read Jesus' prayer in John 17, he prayed that they would be one, his disciples would be one, as he and the Father were one, so that other people might know that God had sent Jesus. And so that's, that's the power of unity, heart-level unity. And as in the book of Acts, some will reject the gospel, 
Some will receive the gospel, and other will keep their, others will keep their distance. And uh, you and I, I suspect, know many people in that last category. And, uh, and the most hopeful, I think, is there's, uh, God can reach anybody. But I'm so hopeful about many of those people that one day they'll say, I not only want to respect these people, I want to get closer. I want to understand. I am open to the possibility of joining with them and following Jesus. And that may be you here today. Maybe you've come and you're moving, inching a little bit closer. And uh, Jesus would love for you to follow him and know him. But none of this influence is possible without heart-level unity that demonstrates loyalty to Jesus and devotion to others in the body of Christ. Well, let me, uh, let me just mention a couple of, of implications for this, the, the idea that God is, is zealous about the unity, heart-level unity in the church. And uh, I think you'll agree with me, if God is zealous about something, we should be zealous about it also. And so two challenges here. One is negative in the sense of something to avoid. One is positive, something to pursue. First of all, avoid thoughts, words, and actions that compromise the unity within the church. And remember that God cared about the motives of Ananias and Sapphira. Nobody would have known any difference between them and Barnabas, but God knew and cared about their hearts. He didn't want their deception to poison the infant church. And so in a similar way, God wants us to pay attention to our hearts. He doesn't want us to do anything to compromise the unity of the church. And the last verse in Psalm 19 really gets at the heart attitude, I think, that God wants us to have. And there David said, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And so it's not enough not to say nasty, harsh, divisive things about others in the church. God doesn't even want us to mull over those thoughts in our, in our hearts. He wants the meditations of our heart, the things we think in our hearts, to, to uh, be kind and patient, even toward, maybe especially toward people that we disagree with in significant things. And so my encouragement to you this week is to just notice your thoughts. Notice your thoughts. Notice what you think about other people in the church. Of course, notice your words and actions too. But it all starts with the thoughts, the meditations of our hearts. Do you daydream more about what other people could and should be doing differently? Or do you meditate more about what God wants you to do or wants you to do differently? With God's help, turn away from anything that compromises our unity. And then second, promote heart-level unity within the church. Just promote it positively. Uh, like the church in Jerusalem, let's seek to be of one heart and soul. And like them, let's pursue a type of unity that's expressed in generosity. And we could get, look at a number of different scriptures that command this very directly. One is in, in Ephesians 4. We read this. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord... I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
And so again, this week, I would urge you to notice yourself as you interact with others in the church or others in the larger body of Christ. Take advantage of opportunities to be humble and gentle and kind toward people. Again, even with those with whom you disagree. And if you're offended, if you've offended someone, or if you have done something out of order, perhaps you need to humble yourself, and perhaps you need to admit it. This past week, the Holy Spirit very, very directly confronted me and said, Steve, you need to apologize. It was very, it was unmistakable. You need to apologize for some careless words that you spoke to someone. And so I did, and the other person gladly forgave me, and our relationship is intact. Yay, I would say our relationship is stronger than it was before. Do I love apologizing to people? No, but I will re- I'm glad to report it did not kill me, okay? And it is 100% worth it to apologize when needed for heart-level unity in the church. Since God is zealous about heart-level unity in the church, we should be too. Heavenly Father, we pray that this would be us. We pray this would be true of us. We pray that we, God, as your people, would walk in a manner worthy. We pray that we would be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit, the unity that exists already in the church because there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's one body of Christ. And so God, teach us to avoid anything that might poison, compromise our unity, and just give us a heart, give us generous hearts to pursue whatever promotes that unity. And God, only, only you know what, what impact you might have through this church, through the body of Christ in Manhattan, in this region. But God, that's what we want. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.